through to 28. Matthew chapter 20, starting from verse 17. And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside. And on the way, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. He said to her, what do you want? She said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. Jesus answered, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said to him, we are able. He said to them, you will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is the word of the Lord. I'm <clears throat> humbled and delighted to be here today. Um, when Mark asked me if I would preach at this occasion, I was deeply touched. I, I did think he had more friends, but um, uh, Mark is someone, and I, I want to commend him warmly to you today. I've known him for some years now. I've watched him at work in our community, relating to people uh, in that context, and uh, I can commend him very, very warmly. Uh, at BST, Mark is much esteemed and greatly loved. My only regret about this morning is that it means that the time is coming closer when Mark isn't regularly on the campus with us. And that'll be a matter of great sadness for all of us at BST who've come to love him so deeply. Um, there's a double joy in being here. Uh, I'm delighted to finally come to this congregation and have the privilege of preaching to you. Uh, at BST, uh, we regard you as one of our great partners in gospel ministry. Uh, the way that you've received graduates from our college, uh, loved them and nurtured them. Uh, think of Dale and Isaac and just what hard work that must have been. But um, <laughs> uh, we regard you as uh, really important partners in the gospel and we appreciate that uh, our graduates have had uh, such a wonderful church to come to where they've been encouraged uh, to pursue gospel ministry and the kind of ministry that I'm about to talk about uh, I want to address my words today from Matthew chapter 20, particularly to Mark, but I want you to listen in because they're addressed to you as well. 
And it's really, really important that someone like me listens in as well and doesn't just talk uh, because these are words that are very important for me to listen to and take to heart. There's been a lot in the news lately about helicopter parenting. <clears throat> Up until six months ago, I wasn't familiar with that expression. My wife tells me it's at least 10 years old and I should get with the times, and that's okay. Uh, it's a term for parents who are overprotective, who cannot bear to watch while their children miss out. And the image of the helicopter is all about hovering over their children's lives, ready to swoop and to intervene where necessary when their children aren't getting the recognition or the respect or the results that their parents want for them. They want what's best for their children, but pretty much at any expense. And they're willing to apply pressure in all kinds of directions. I remember uh, my son playing soccer in a team. There was one particular boy, he was really quite gifted, he was a good player, but every time he got the ball, his parents would yell out, go yourself, son. And I thought, oh, that's, that's really building team cohesion, that's really helping. <laughs> it's become a real problem in schools with parents interfering uh, they say in one report that I read that parents have actually become responsible for some of the worst bullying in our schools. They get onto the social media and harass other children for their perceived uh, harm to their own children. It's even become a problem in universities where university lecturers have been threatened with legal action because their children didn't get the marks that the parents really thought that they deserved or might affect their future. Now, I, I, want to disclaim, uh, I want to issue a disclaimer at the beginning here. I know Mark quite well, but I don't really know his mum. And nothing I'm about to say is directed at his mum. Because <laughs> 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 we're going to talk about helicopter parent, and uh, it's a mum. And I just don't want her to think I'm, I'm singling her out. Uh, I mean, she may need to go away and reflect. I mean, the <laughs> you know, that. I mean, there was a period when she was reading the college. No, that's not true. No, 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 that's not true. Um, that was his wife. No, 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 that's not true. Uh, because in Matthew chapter 20, we meet what looks like an ancient form of helicopter parenting. It shows you that it's more than six years old, and I, I'll break this to Kim later. It's probably older than 10 years old. <laughs> uh, it's as old as the Bible itself, this kind of parenting, and we meet a helicopter parent in... Matthew chapter 28 and, uh, no, Matthew chapter 20 in the passage that we're looking at. Um, she's presented that way by Matthew. But I don't think we should be too critical of her or think that she was a particularly bad mother in applying that label. As we read the story, she seems like a very normal mother in a lot of ways. I'll refer to her as Mrs Zebedee, mother of James and John. And her behaviour in this episode is very understandable for a range of reasons. First of all, she recognises that Jesus is a source of blessing. And he said to her, what do you want? She said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your kingdom. To her credit, Mrs Zebedee recognises that Jesus is able to hand out enormous privilege and advantage. She can see that he's come to achieve great things. She's even convinced that he's bringing in God's kingdom and will succeed. In fact, she sees Jesus as the true king of that kingdom. 
She refers to it as your kingdom. She sees Jesus very clearly in a number of ways. She recognises his power and authority, otherwise she wouldn't be asking for the favour that she's asking for. She also treats Jesus with great respect. In keeping with her understanding of who Jesus is, she approaches him with deference. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. We are told that she kneeled before Jesus to show her humility and her reverence towards him. She knows that she's in the presence of someone very, very great. And she issues her request in a polite way. It's a bold request, there's no doubt about that, but she asks, and she asks politely. She's only responding to what Jesus said. What do you want? And in response to that, she finally explains why she's come and bowed down before him. She doesn't demand something from Jesus. She knows he's the right person to ask for what she's about to ask for. And so she goes ahead and asks Jesus for this favour for her sons. She knows Jesus is generous and may well grant even the boldest request. Throughout Jesus' ministry, people have approached him for help, for healing, for forgiveness, for cleansing. The worst of sinners have come and fallen down on their knees before Jesus and been forgiven. People have been raised from the dead by this man. And she seems very aware of that as she comes. It doesn't seem to, be, uh, to her to be a question that's beyond the possibility of Jesus granting. Time and time again, people will say to Jesus, uh, Jesus will say to people when they come up to him, what do you want me to do? In the very next story, two blind men will ask for sight and he'll give it to them. It's the same question that Jesus responds to that those men ask Jesus and that he says, what do you want me to do? Perhaps she's witnessed this kind of thing happening or maybe her boys have come home and told her stories excitedly of what Jesus has done to liberate people from sickness and sin. And maybe she said to them, well, you should ask him then. Why don't you ask him? And maybe they were too shy and said, oh, Mum. I can see them rolling their eyes at each other. Oh, Mum, don't think the other guys would like that if we did that. And she said, OK, I will then. And promptly took the two boys. I think she probably wiped their cheek with a spat on hanky just to make sure that when they did come to Jesus, they were looking presentable. That's what my mum would have done. This is a woman who wants what's best for her sons like any good mother. She's pursuing what she thinks will be best for her boys. If there are positions of importance to be given out, she wants her sons to be at the front of the queue. She wants her sons to live significant lives to be recognised as people of substance. She wants her sons to amount to something. She is ambitious for her sons, but what mother isn't ambitious for her children? And look, to be really fair to this woman, she's not just another mother. 
She is the mother of James and John, two of the very first disciples that Jesus called to follow him. They were working in the family business at the time when Jesus called them. And at that, they left their father to run the business by himself. So maybe she figures that she's due for some kind of compensation, some kind of redress scheme for the sacrifices involved. Jesus' kingdom, after all, has taken her sons away from her and the family home and from the family. It would all be worth it if there was some special honour, some special glory ahead for her sons, that maybe the two sons might have the places of honour with Jesus in his kingdom, one at his right hand and one at his left hand. She thinks that would be appropriate recognition of the kind of commitment that these two boys have had to their Lord Jesus. Like a swimmer who trains for hours every day, for years, swimming back and forward, the parents who take them along four o'clock in the morning, alarm clock goes off, some of you are going, you think it's as late as four o'clock in the morning? We never got to sleep in that long. But you know, you've taken your children to training, paid for expensive coaches. When they stand up on that dice at the Commonwealth Games and Olympic Games and they get their medal, it's all worth it. And that seems to be the kind of logic that she's pursuing. So she speaks on behalf of her sons. It becomes very clear very quickly that it's not just her idea, that her sons share the idea with her. It's not just a mum foisting something on her boys. This is something they've discussed. They apparently aren't willing to go there and ask the question. But from Jesus' response in verse 22, it's clear that he's speaking to her and to the boys. In fact, he'll focus on the two boys. When he says, you do not know what you are asking, it's a plural you in the original language. It's not a singular. So really, he interprets the mother's question as a request that the boys ultimately are making. And he says, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? And they said to him, the boys, we are able. This isn't come out of the blue for them. They've been thinking about this. They've been wondering if it wouldn't be possible. They're not blindsided by their mother's request. It doesn't just reflect her value system and her ambitions for her boys. It reflects their ambitions. Her sons want what she is asking for. This is their ambition too. It's just apparently they were too timid to ask. And like any good mother, she's helping her sons get what they want out of life. She's wanting them to realise their ambitions. She's advocating for them and their future. And so she makes what seems to her a very reasonable request. Grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. Perhaps she's aiming a little high, the seats of greatest honour. These two were called very early by Jesus, but Peter and Andrew were just in front of them. But she wants her sons to have the place of highest honour in Jesus' kingdom. If you look back to verse 19, Jesus has just talked about being raised from the dead. And she wants her sons to be at the centre 
of what Jesus is doing going into the future. And she wants them to receive the recognition that she's convinced they deserve. Yes, she is a pushy mother, but she loves her sons and wants what's best for them. But Jesus' response in verse 22 makes it clear that the three of them have made a terrible mistake, a tragic error in their understanding of Jesus. He says, you don't know what you're asking. They have miscalculated terribly and they still don't realise, even after Jesus has said that, the two boys go, of course we're able to drink the cup, of course we're able to drink the cup. The, the request she makes shows that they haven't been listening to Jesus. The request she makes on their behalf shows that they have misunderstood the nature of his kingdom. He highlights their selective deafness with this cutting question. Can you drink the cup I am going to drink? Jesus is referring to the cup of God's judgment. It's a graphic image from the Old Testament. It refers to the suffering that Jesus must experience to bring in God's kingdom. He must drain the dregs of the cup of God's angry judgment. Before anyone can sit down to the great wedding feast, before anyone can begin to banquet, Jesus must go the way of rejection and suffering and being executed by people. This was the last thing that Jesus said before Mrs Zebedee stepped in. We are going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. She seems to have heard the resurrection bit and the glory bit, but had missed out on the suffering, the mocking, the flogging, the crucifying bit. Because that's the way that Jesus must walk in order to bring about our salvation. That's what it will take for him to drain the dregs of the cup of God's angry judgment at human sin. And their response shows that they still don't get it. So eager, so unaware, so naive. We can, we can, we can drink that cup. They still think that the pathway to Jesus' glorious kingdom will be straightforward. Little do they realise what lies ahead for Jesus and what lies ahead for them. Remember the request. What did she ask for? She wanted one to sit at Jesus' right hand and one to sit at Jesus' left hand. Now remember, Jesus says, you don't know what you're asking. Matthew will drive that point home in chapter 27 when he describes the scene of Jesus' execution. Two rebels were crucified with him. One on his right and one on his left. Do you see how little they understood what they were asking for? How little they understood the way that it would take for Jesus to bring his kingdom in? Because that's the moment at which he's truly establishing his kingdom as he's hanging there on a cross, breathing his last. And there's someone on his right and someone on his left. It's a stunning example of irony, the sort of thing the gospel writers use often, where people speak much more truly than they realise. 
And they don't understand what they're saying, but we as readers get it and we understand the point. And it just shows how ignorant they were even after all this time with Jesus, after all that they've watched and heard Jesus teaching. They show a presumption that Jesus doesn't even show. He said to them, you will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. Jesus, God's eternal Son, the one who came to save, who will sit at God's right hand when he's completed his work. Even that Jesus does not presume to make the decision about who will have the seats of honour in his kingdom. That's the Father's privilege and authority, and Jesus leaves it up to the Father to do the choosing. The approach by Mrs Zebedee and the response of the two boys will bring a very sharp response from the other disciples. And notice where their anger is directed. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. They deeply resent this attempt by mother and sons to get the inside rail. They hold the brothers responsible for this and they seem to be angry because it might mean that they miss out. By pushing her sons forward, they're getting forced further back in the queue and they resent that deeply. If those two boys get the top cabinet positions, then there aren't as many plum jobs to go around with the others. The other disciples could miss out on prestige and status. There is no mention of the mother in their indignation. It's aimed at James and John. For them, it was James and John who were pushing themselves forward. But what becomes very clear to Jesus is this isn't just a problem that has affected or infected James and John. This terrible, tragic misunderstanding of Jesus' kingdom and its values runs right across the band of 12, not just James and John with their helicopter mother. And Jesus will then see the need to sit them all down and explain to him how his kingdom works. They've all got it wrong. None of them has been listening to Jesus. None of them have understood the kingdom that they are so eager to be prominent in. So Jesus gathers them together and points out that they are still ruled by the value system of this world. That's their fundamental mistake. Their value system has not been turned upside down like it needs to be by the teaching and the example of Jesus. It's the mistake made by Mrs Zebedee, it's the mistake made by James and John, and apparently from the way the story's told, it's a problem that all the disciples share. They have imagined that Jesus' kingdom will operate the way the world does. They haven't grasped the revolution that Jesus is introducing. In our world, positions of leadership are often exploited for power and for advantage. One of the reasons that people covet positions of authority and leadership is because of the respect, the privilege, the perks that come along with that. Jesus called them to him and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. The model of Roman rule over Palestine, over Judea, 
was just a classic place to go and look at Gentile rulers lording it over people, ordering them around, using their authority for their own benefit and pleasure. Too many of our politicians see politics and government in these terms. And we know it all too well. Perks and privileges to be exploited. Too many have been caught rorting their travel allowances or heading overseas for another study tour at taxpayers' expense. They see their positions of leadership and authority as an opportunity to exploit and to order people around. And so often they see themselves as above the law. They ensure that friends and family benefit from the best jobs, the lucrative contracts, the various exemptions, and they make a mockery of the expression public service. And I'm talking about a country where we have it really, really good. In some countries, their leaders rule as tyrants, using the law of the land to oppress, imprison, and execute their opposition. But tragically, even more tragically, too often these same patterns find themselves uh, seeping into our churches, where church leaders are capable even of abusing children, taking advantage of the weak, seeing themselves as above the law in some sense, expecting congregation members to be there for their benefit, to serve them, to make their life more pleasurable, uh, basking in the status that goes along with this kind of leadership. And you can see, even with the induction of Mark today, there's a certain elevation and kind of giving of status in that process. As humble as that process was, and you know that there are other denominations that would have made it a lot more fancy and would have had Mark in some crazy designer gear. But, you know, in a church like this, it's, it's very low-key. But even then... You could be looking on and thinking, oh, Mark has been elevated to a position of status and importance in our congregation. We need to, we need to look after him and, and, and look out for him. And of course, that is true, but that's not because he's amongst you as someone superior or elevated or better than you in any shape or form. Jesus turns the world's value system upside down and says, the first will be last, and the last first. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Jesus demands that his followers be different. In his kingdom, true greatness will be measured by service. True leadership is exercised for the good of others, at the personal expense of the leader. And that must be the value system among God's people, amongst God's pastors, and amongst God's people generally. It has to be the value system that we pursue at our college. It has to be the value system that you pursue here at church. There will be a need for authority and leadership to be exercised in the churches. We need leadership. But it's not for the sake of the leader, for the benefit of the leader, to show the status of the leader or to honour the leader. It is for the sake of those who are entrusted into their care. And Jesus isn't asking us, isn't asking Mark 
for anything that he was not prepared to do and to be. The great model of this radical pattern of leadership is Jesus himself. The disciples would have known this if they had been listening to Jesus. If they paid more careful attention to what Jesus had said about what's about to happen in Jerusalem. But Jesus summarises it beautifully in verse 28. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Today is a day for Mark to meditate on this verse, this great truth about Jesus. But we all need to meditate on this reality. Jesus, Son of Man, Son of God, ruler of the universe, came to us as a servant. He didn't come expecting us to bow down and scrape and fall at his feet. He knew us and how self-centred we were. He knows our hearts all too well. He knew he would have to come as a servant to meet our needs, to meet the obligations that we couldn't meet and to lay down his life in our place. And Jesus was prepared to do that, to come and lay down his life voluntarily as a sacrifice for us and our sins, giving his life as a ransom to liberate, liberate us from our enslavement, our enslavement to sin, to death, to doing the devil's works, Jesus recognised our deepest problem, our alienation from God because of our selfish, rebellious hearts, our track record of disobedience to his will. Jesus could see how we were trapped and we were unable to kick ourselves free. And so he came and willingly laid down his life to pay the price for our freedom. He gave his life as a ransom he faced the consequences, the cost of our sin and was willing to be our servant in winning the forgiveness of those sins. My mother could be pushy. I wouldn't say she was a helicopter parent, but there were moments where I was embarrassed. She sent me to speak to her. There was a time when I was uh, praying at a conference and she'd known uh, the main speaker many years before. She told me to go up and say hello to him. You know that awful moment where your mother tells you to go up and say hello to someone and they go, what's your mother's name again? Oh, no, doesn't come back to me. <laughs> so I had to go back and tell her that with a certain kind of relish and delight. But anyway, <laughs> the thing I remember her for being pushy about most was about that life was for service. My mother was like a broken record. If I did well in my exams, she would remind me that God had given me my gifts and I had to use them for his glory. And her favourite memory verse was this verse. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Her mum's been dead nearly 10 years now. But that verse rings in my ears. I hear it in her voice. I can picture her saying it to me again and again and again. Uh, she would just remind me of it at every opportunity because it was the creed for her life. She lived it out. And that was her ambition for me. More than anything, she wanted me to be a servant. She wanted me to be a servant of God and of others. My mother was caught up in the Jesus revolution. She understood what Jesus had come to do. 
and she understood how Jesus wanted us to live our lives. And there was nothing she wanted more for her son than that. And there's nothing we want more for Mark than to be that kind of servant. What about you? What impact has the Jesus revolution had on you and your deepest values? How much has it shaped what you really want for yourself or what you really want for your children, what you really want for your pastors, what you really want for your youth leaders, what you really want for your missionaries? What are your life ambitions? When you have money or influence or power, is it for your benefit or for others? Or have you been entrusted with these things for the sake of others? We shouldn't be surprised when the world can't get that right. When we read about another politician finding jobs for his mistress, or hear about another government official rorting the system, or an overseas government cracking down on Christians meeting together, putting Christians in jail. But we should weep when the church gets it wrong. When the people who claim in the name of Jesus and his revolution to be following him continue to be self-seeking and self-serving. When people who claim to be members of the kingdom show by the lives that they live, the priorities that they choose, the ambitions that they pursue, that they still don't get it. Today is a day to pray for our dear brother Mark that he would have a servant heart and understand the nature of, to, of true greatness. And I can assure you that in our context, he's exemplified exactly that. So I commend him to you. But I want you to keep on praying for him. Suddenly being paid to do a job full-time, having people regard you as the pastor, it can get under your skin and cause you to begin to have delusions of grandeur. Keep on loving him and being generous to him, but pray that he would prove to be a model of the Jesus revolution for anyone who is served by him. But it's also a day that we should pray for ourselves as well, that we would get the upside-down value system of the kingdom, to see even more clearly that Jesus set us free, but he set us free to serve. May God enable Mark and every one of us to walk in the footsteps of the Son of Man who came to serve, not to be served. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the mercy that you have shown towards us in Jesus, especially as we consider the cross and his willingness to lay down his life in order to serve us, uh, to do for us and to deliver to us things that we simply couldn't achieve on our own. And we pray that that great act of sacrifice that won our salvation will, always set, will also set the standards for how we live together in your kingdom, that we would be people with servant hearts, wanting to be like Jesus. And on this special day, we pray especially for Mark. We pray that he would have this servant heart, that he'd constantly be reminding himself and be reminded of the sacrifice and example of the Lord Jesus and that he would simply want to be a servant, more and more being conformed to the character of his master.
We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen.